Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 255, London Witch to London. This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Bill, Elizabeth, and Stephanie for signing up already. London is a world unto itself. And it has been that way for most of its very, very long history. One of the weirdest things about the city is that it contains its own separate city, distinct from the rest of London. It has its own laws, its own government, its own walls. The city of London is a city within a city. And it gets a lot of attention, not to mention money. Currently, it houses the financial district, which houses the most powerful banking institutions of not only the UK, but for the entire world. For those of you who'd never seen it, the City of London is an irregular section of larger London, on the north bank of the Thames. If you're coming from the south of the river, you enter it by crossing the London Bridge. If you're still having a hard time imagining this, type in City of London into Google Maps, and you're going to see it marked out in red. This area retains more or less the same boundaries as the first Roman settlement of Londinium. This original part of London has a long and rich history that stretches back to at least those Roman days. And if you walk around the city and you know what you're looking for, you can still stumble upon the remnants of the city's Roman past. In fact, during one visit, Z and I accidentally came across the old Roman amphitheater while we were wandering around late at night trying to shake off jet lag. The city of London is full of stuff like that. And following the story of London as it develops and changes along with the rest of Britain is something we will do as this show goes forward. But for all of its current power and for all of its former glory, when we reach back to the 10th century, which is where we're at right now, we're looking at one of the dimmest periods in the city's history. As Rome withdrew, political instability reigned, and the large-scale organization of society that Roman life relied upon, and London in particular relied upon, broke down. The focus of life became much more local. The resources which were needed to keep the city running dried up. Major infrastructure fell into disrepair and eventually the city was abandoned. It's almost impossible to imagine, but the seat of Roman power in Britain had been turned into a ghost town. The streets and buildings that were once the hub of elite life in southern Britain fell completely to ruin. Decent society and normal life had left the city, and in the shadows of the hollowed-out walls and structures, crime began to flourish. It was from this period where we find a body of a woman within the confines of the city of London. The investigation suggests that she died sometime between 670 and 880. And it's always exciting when we find remains from this period of time. But usually, the focus of the resulting archaeological investigation is on the life of the person. However, for this poor woman, the focus quickly turned to the nature of her death. Her skull had been crushed in by what could only have been an enormous blow. 
she'd been buried on the bank of a river, and for unknown reasons, her body was laid out on some bark. Even more intriguingly, her face, knees, and genitals were covered with moss, and then she was covered entirely with more bark. Finally, whoever buried her staked her body in place, and then covered the grave with a mound of gravel. So, was she a victim of murder? Are we seeing evidence that murderers were using London like an old British form of the New Jersey Pine Barrens? Maybe. But given the nature of her burial, I suspect the more likely answer is that this was what archaeologists refer to as a deviant burial. When people are found buried in a way that's outside of the normal burial customs, especially in elaborate and dramatic ways, like this poor woman was, it's generally thought that it's a sign that the deceased was somehow considered apart from their society, and not in a good way. Often, this is the sort of burial that we see in societies that fear undead monsters or supernatural powers. This is the end that tends to be met by people suspected of being vampires or witches. So this woman very well may have been targeted, executed, and buried in this strange way because people feared her or because she was seen as a social undesirable. It's something we might never know. But looking at this burial, I don't think it's much of a leap to say that whether it was someone trying to hide a murder or whether someone was making an example of this woman for supernatural or whatever reasons. The fact remains that the city of London during this period wasn't exactly a cheery place to be. You don't bury your bodies in the heart of the city that you live in. Or at least I don't. So life around London had clearly moved on. People had relocated. The city had been left behind. And over generations, the past was also lost. People forgot that it was their ancestors who had once lived inside those walls, who may have even built those walls. This memory was slowly replaced by rumors that the walls had been built by giants. The city of London wasn't a place for people. It was a creepy, neglected ghost town, and it continued to decline. But that slowly began to change when Christianity returned to Britain. As you might remember from the previous episode, the church in Rome preferred to establish bases of power in old Roman settlements. And so with its return to the island, it shouldn't surprise us all that much that it wasn't long before the church in Rome ordered that a bishopric be established in London. The city, long neglected, began to see some life back within its walls. But for the most part, Life within the walls was meager. And actually, even though a church was erected in London at the direction of King Athelbert of Kent in about 604, it was torn down by the kings of Essex only 12 years later, in 616. And then, it was later re-established, only to be cast out again. For about three quarters of a century, the Bishopric of London was impermanent. It was a project for some influential members of society, but it could be torn down in the blink of an eye, should a king or an archbishop see fit to do so. And so I suspect that for the people in the region at the time, the bishopric, much like the city itself, was largely just a relic, a curiosity without any substantial political power that lived and died at the whim of powerful individuals 
until it was finally permanently established in 675. But even after the permanent establishment of the Bishop of London, the site of his see, the city of London, Londinium, was still just a pale reflection of his former glory. Far from the hub of imperial power on the island, now it was just largely an ecclesiastical site, and no one else seemed all that eager to operate within it until around the age of Alfred. And right about now, close listeners of the BHP are likely saying, hey, wait a minute. We've heard about London being passed around as a political and economic football since long before Alfred. And well done. You're right. But the traders and craftsmen of London in the 7th, 8th, and early 9th centuries weren't actually located within the city of London. Those lands were still largely abandoned and pretty much only used by the church, if at all. Instead, the craftsmen and traders of London were actually located a little way upstream at a secondary settlement located on the modern-day Strand. But at the time, it was called Londonwich. The settlement of Londonwich was of immense economic and political importance in southern Britain, and for good reason. It was a natural trading hub, and as a consequence, large amounts of money was flowing through its port. So here we have an image of two little worlds. You have the bustling, successful, sprawling port of Londonwich, and its creepy, rotting shadow of the city of London, right next door. But here, at the dawn of the 10th century, we're beginning to see the signs of change. Slowly, the economic and domestic activity began to actually withdraw from Londonwich and return to the city of London. The tables were turning. But why? Why would they move from the bustling economic center of Londonwich and into the equivalent of a haunted house? That doesn't just happen on its own. There's a story here, and it's a story that tells us something that the story of Worcester can't. And to begin to unravel the mystery of this move from Londonwich to London, we need to go to the late 700s, to the time of Charlemagne. During this period, Londonwich was already operating as a major hub of international trade for Southern Britain. And frankly, it was the major international trading hub for the island in general. It was pretty important, but it wasn't without its problems. The wealth that it generated turned Londonwich into something of a political football. In fact, following the death of Offa, the question of who held the rights to London and Londonwich became something of a sticking point between the courts of Mercia and Wessex. They both wanted a hand in that city, and that fact no doubt made the locals quite nervous, because being stuck in the middle of a pissing match between two branches of aristocrats is never a safe place for a peasant or a merchant to be. To add to their troubles, there was also the issue of flammability, as in the town itself was extremely flammable. Fire's a foe that stalks London for its entire history, and in the late 700s and early 800s, Londonwich was a victim to several apparently accidental yet catastrophic fires. So despite the fact that it was on the rise, things weren't exactly perfect. And actually, when we look at the archaeological record, we see something really interesting. After those fires, despite the settlement's political importance, it doesn't appear that there was much of an effort to rebuild any of the burned-out buildings. That's strange. 
If London Witch was a major hub of trade, why weren't they quickly working to rebuild the parts of the settlement that were destroyed in the fire? Why were they, instead, just working with what parts of the town remained? Was there a downturn in trade? Was there a drop in population? And if so, why? Well, this is where Charlemagne might help us out. As you might remember, the Carolingian Empire was, to put it lightly, unstable. Even under Charlemagne, things tended to get a bit ugly from time to time. Remember how Charlemagne found himself under assault by a gargantuan fleet of Danes? Which was likely in response to his decision to massacre a bunch of Saxons? Well, instability like that tends to have a significant impact on trade. If you have an enemy fleet that's so large that Charlemagne is forced to stand down, that's gonna put a damper on sea-based trade for a while. And the impact of conflicts like that will also have an impact on the economy of Charlemagne's Francia. And unfortunately for London Witch, Francia was one of their biggest trading partners in the region. Furthermore, as you've learned in earlier episodes, Charlemagne's successors had their own fair share of missteps not to mention costly infighting. And all of this resulted in a shocking economic decline all throughout Northwestern Europe. And so, London Witch was staring down the barrel of an economic crisis. Loss of trade turned into loss of demand, and that turned into even more lost trade. So, even though London Witch had yet to see a single Northman going a Viking in their harbor, They were still reeling from the impact of Carolingian mismanagement, foreign wars, often with or at least involving the Scandinavians, and the widespread piracy that was popping up in its wake. And that decline accelerated following the first recorded Vikinger raid on London Witch in 842. And that was no doubt furthered by the fact that as soon as the 860s came around, southern Britain was under sustained assault by the Scandinavians, which placed any riverside or coastal settlement in the south deeply at risk. And even if you weren't in the south, trade was still significantly curtailed due to the cascading effect of these trading towns being raided. And of course, due to reduced numbers of trade ships at sea, thanks to how risky voyages were becoming. So London Witch was shrinking, because people started to look for safer settlements that weren't such attractive targets for raiders. And perhaps that's why we see a record of the Bishop of Worcester dated to 857, which gives the bishop commercial and property rights, quote, not far from the West Gates, end quote. And that record strongly implies that the bishop's lands, not far from the West Gates, were actually placed just inside the walls of the old city of London. Now, don't take this to mean that there was a widespread resettlement of London during this period. We don't have records that indicate that. And honestly, a bishop holding lands within the city, even if it was largely abandoned, isn't all that surprising considering that, for the most part, the only records that we have of people operating within the city since about the 600s was the church, along with the occasional shady burial. But, on the other hand, the commercial property interests that were acquired by the Bishop of Worcester and critically placed within the walls of the city could be an indication that there was a change in how the city was being viewed and utilized. And that change might have been happening as early as the mid-800s. 
But regardless, the writing was on the wall. The increase in raids was having a disastrous impact upon trade. And it was also leading to large-scale resettlement of coastal and river towns. And that was absolutely devastating London Witch. And then, in 871, a near-fatal blow came in the form of the great heathen army. Halfdan's army, stationed at the royal ton of Reading, would have had to have had an enormous impact upon London Witch. They were just a bit to the west of the trading town, and having such a gargantuan force that close to a trading hub would have been quite a disincentive to any merchants that were looking for trade. I mean... If you were looking for a sign that it was time for you to find a new market to operate in, I'm pretty sure that a massive Scandinavian army just hanging out in the neighborhood was a pretty good indication that the stars were aligned for a new venture. And so craftsmen and traders probably did take the hint and relocated. And meanwhile, those that didn't were in for a rude awakening, because later that year, the Great Army advanced on London and occupied it over the winter. And this occupation carries with it some really interesting archaeological data points. In particular, we've been finding hordes of Mercian coins from this period of occupation. And that's markedly different from the suspected Vikinger horde that was found in Croydon, which had coins from all over the place. When I say Mercian coins, I really mean that these hordes were almost exclusively Mercian. And that leads scholars to believe that they are actually buried by Londoners, who either never came back for them or died as a result of the occupation. But here's the thing. Those Londoner hordes were buried inside the city walls. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. If the Danes occupied the city of London, and if there are coins that are buried in hordes at the time of the occupation and were never retrieved, does that mean that there was an unrecorded reoccupation of the city prior to the arrival of Halfdan? We don't know. It is possible that the hordes were buried in London because it was just a quiet place where you'd be able to sneak off and hide your wealth outside of the prying eyes of your neighbors. But that being said, I would imagine that burying your gold in the ground underneath your floorboards might be a little bit more secure than going into the ghost-infested murder town just down the river. But that's just me. Maybe common sense was a bit different back then. Or maybe it wasn't. And we're seeing evidence that there was more than just the Bishop of London and Bishop of Worcester who were operating within the city's walls. And as for where those people might have come from, well, we see archaeological evidence of settlements around London being stripped of agricultural workers and others being abandoned entirely. People weren't just leaving London, which they're also leaving the other unprotected settlements. And perhaps they were looking around and saying, You know, Hilda, I know I've been saying that London gives me the creeps, but with all these pagans running around, having some walls might not be a bad idea. But however these hordes ended up in London, it's clear that many of their owners never made it back there to retrieve them. So something happened to them, and I think we're looking at a major disruption as a result of this occupation. Now, eventually, Halfdan's great army left London though they only did it after they were paid a Danegeld by the King of Mercia, who we know gathered those funds from throughout his kingdom, including actually from the Bishop of Worcester, who complained about the size of the tribute. But 
after Halfdan and his forces left London in 872, something seems to have happened within the city. Do you remember that joint coinage that King Cheowulf II of Mercia and King Alfred of Wessex issued in the 870s? You know those coins that had Cheowulf and Alfred on them? Well, those coins stated that they were minted in London. And it's hard to imagine that there were moneyers working in London which, considering that it was pretty much completely exposed to Viking raids and was increasingly being abandoned. So, do these strange joint coins indicate that not only was there a form of cooperation between Mercia and Wessex in the 870s, but also the city of London was being resettled by not just members of the clergy in pockets, but also by vestiges of royal authority? It certainly seems that way. But whatever the case, the city of London was due to get an increased amount of attention. And we know that because the credit for resettling the city of London is usually given to Alfred. And that's due to the fact that he made it official. In the 880s, Asser tells us that Alfred made the city of London habitable again and took what few people still remained at the mostly deserted town of Londonwich and moved them within the walls of the city of London. He then ordered that, along with the city, the walls should be restored and repaired. Londinium, the city of London, became Londonbur. And as for Londonwich, that was renamed to Eldwich, Old City, what we now call Aldwich. But looking at the archaeological evidence, as well as the little hints that we get in the written record, it seems that the city, which likely was rough and decaying, was already being reoccupied by the time that Alfred made his move. He just did it in a bigger and more official way. And then he handed the city over to Elderman Athelred of Mercia, his son-in-law. And from that point on, we start to get a clearer image of what was going on, thanks to the presence of a written record. We hear of people taking up residence near the walls at what they called Athelred's Hitha, which translates to Athelred's Port. Though today... It's called Queen Hive. However, matching the rest of this story of reoccupation, we find at this site too, the archaeological records indicate that people have been living there long before Alfred and Athelred restored the city. And you might be wondering why people were already living at Athelred's Hitha. I mean, being stationed by the river is an obvious advantage, but the city of London is fairly sizable. There were plenty of places that could have accommodated settlers. Furthermore, due to Londinium's Roman past, there is a patchwork of piers and docks all along the riverfront. So why this particular stretch of river? Well, the answer very well may come from those same Roman piers and docks. See, the problem is that it had been centuries since the city was a fully functioning trading town. And in the interim... All of those docks and keys and piers had fell to ruin and decayed. Rather than creating an easy place for boats to moor, all they did was create an obstacle course for potential traders. Getting into Londinium by boat would have been a huge pain in the ass. But, for whatever reason, most of the piers at Athelred's Hitha had been torn down in the late Roman period. And that meant that boats could approach the city at Athelred's Hitha without running afoul of all the remnants of the old Roman days that were just sitting in the water, waiting to knock a hole in your hull. So, people started settling there. 
and then Alfred and Athelred decided to restore the city. And the Hitha became incredibly important to the restoration, and to the kingdom as a whole. And the reason for that becomes all the more obvious when you look at its position. The Hitha was a port that was easiest to reach by boats coming from downriver. As in, it was easiest to be reached from people coming from the mouth of the Thames or beyond. That meant that the Hitha would take center stage for any efforts at re-establishing and expanding international trade. If Wessex was going to get back on its feet and rebuild the trade network that had been under assault for about a hundred years, it would need to come out swinging, and the Hitha could help them with that a great deal. However, along with this apparent success story, I have to wonder what happened to the people who had already settled at Athelred's Hitha before Alfred and Athelred came along and made it official. Because all of a sudden, this little landing area became prime real estate. And my guess is that any of the people who decided to live in the city back when it was still a ghost-infested murder town probably weren't the sort of high-status people that Athelred was looking to stock his new trading capital with. In fact... I know they weren't. We have two charters, one from 889 and another from 899, and they detail how Athelred, shortly after taking possession of the city, moved to revitalize and rebuild the area around Athelred's Hitha. He established two commercial lots, two Haga, and we're told that Athelred granted, quote, an old stone building, end quote, to the Bishop of Worcester, in which he said he can operate a market there, free of tolls or fees. It's thought that this building that was given was the old Roman baths on Huggin Hill. The other lot, the other Haga, was given to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, over time, the toll-free rules were loosened and the bishops were paying tolls just like anyone else. But it looks like, to begin with, Athelred was doing whatever he could to revitalize the trading economy within Londonborough and allowing the Bishop of Worcester to establish a market and providing a financial incentive to do so was a smart move on the part of Athelred. The bishop was already well established in one town, and that town was in the middle of restructuring into a market town, and so it would be in both their interests for the bishop to bring a lot of goods and demand to the newly restored city. And that effort put forward by Athelred does appear to have worked because we see material evidence of timber trestles, wooding mooring posts, mats of timber suitable for resting boats. We see coinage, Norse-inspired accessories, and even Frankish goods. And all of this points towards the construction and the operation of a beachfront market. Now, the facilities themselves were wooden, and they were also modest. And due to the way that they were constructed, they would need to be replaced about every 30 years. Furthermore, notably, unlike their Roman predecessors, the docks and piers and related buildings weren't the result of a massive state-sponsored project. Instead, Athelred's Hitha would have been a patchwork of smaller construction projects largely carried out by individual landowners seeking to profit from the refurbishment of the city. So the construction of the Hitha would have been a little chaotic and ramshackle. But the markets of London long abandoned, were coming back to life. In an apparent effort to entice interest in the city, Athelred undertook further construction efforts outside the walls of the city as well. An additional burr was constructed across the river, 
was placed to the south, and a location that still carries its original name, Southwark, the Southern Work. Now why? Why build a burr, a fortification, across the river from your newly restored city of London Burr? What benefit could that possibly provide to the project of revitalizing the city? Well, many scholars suspect that the old London Bridge was being reconstructed during this era. And for good reason. Building that bridge would have provided an effective barrier against Danish invasions coming upriver. And it also would have made the city a little bit more attractive to traders, since having a bridge like that would make it easier for people to access the city from the Shires to the south. So, if that's the case, then creating Southwark would have made a hell of a lot of sense, because you'd have Southwark on one side and London Burr on the other, and they'd both be able to provide protection to the London Bridge. It basically would have created something similar to the fortified bridge at Paris, which gave Rollo and the Danes so much trouble. So London was a flurry of activity of this period. But I want to be clear, despite the triumphant tone taken by Asser, Alfred's restoration wasn't an instant repopulation of the old city. The area within the Roman walls was sizable, and much like with Worcester, the speed in which the buildings would be reoccupied and refurbished ultimately came down to individual choices made by people from all walks of life. And that would take time. Some people might see the writing on the wall and take the chance. But make no mistake about it, this was quite a chance. And so many others hung back and waited to see how things worked out. After all, the old city was spooky, broken down, and people still remembered when it was occupied by Halfdan, so it's not like it was perfectly safe. So for a while, within the walls, it was just the riverside markets that showed signs of life. And then another marketplace popped up inland at Cheapside. And then eventually, more people did come. In fact, we see evidence of a settlement popping up in the shadow of the very same old Roman amphitheater that Z and I accidentally stumbled upon one evening. But despite the effort that was being put into refurbishing London, despite its prominence and its history, London Burr still was very much a small developing community at this point. The wars with the Danes had taken their toll. In fact, in contrast to the growing complexity and development of Worcester, during this period, London Burr was still largely derelict. Worcester, at least, had an existing bishop's town to build upon and expand. But London Burr was the reoccupation of a largely abandoned city during a time when people were already leaving the nearby town of Londonwich and other surrounding settlements. So rather than having a stable, relatively wealthy population to build upon, the greater London area was in a period of massive decline. And outside of refugees, it's doubtful that there were all that many people who were eager to move back into the city. In fact, it wouldn't be until the turn of the millennium before we'd see the Haga being subdivided. It would take almost a full century before we'd see merchants from Normandy, France, Flanders, the Rhine, and elsewhere who were paying fees to the Reeve in order to be able to trade in London. It took that long, because these things take time. And so for right now, when you think about the redevelopment of the city of London, don't think of crowded urban lots filled with merchants and craftsmen. The people who were living in the city during this period 
were clustered around a few small ports and marketplaces. But for the most part, people were still rattling around inside a mostly deserted and ruinous burr. They weren't living urban lives the way you might imagine it. Within the city, even around the old amphitheater, we see evidence that they were raising livestock and living semi-rural lives, even within the walls. The sounds of Londonbur wasn't the bustle of a high street. The sounds of much of Londonbur was, well, like a farm. Furthermore, even when you got close to the market sites near the river, don't think of cosmopolitan traders, at least not yet. The material evidence that we find for this period reflects a far more local trade, and also far more simple goods. There were luxury items like jewelry being made and sold there, sure, but a lot of it seems to have been made out of cheaper materials, sometimes even bone. And that suggests that while people might have wanted to add a little decoration to their lives, they were still living on a budget thanks to the catastrophic economic changes of the previous century or so. This was all going to take time. Cities don't rebuild overnight, not even with royal support. But, even though it was just a shadow of its former self, at long last, London Burr was open for business. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. And you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thumb and calling through the fog.